This is Prolific, a collection of conversations with creative people about what compels them to make the things they do and how they deal with fear, uncertainty, and doubt along the way. I'm Joseph Rooks, and on this episode, I talk with Allie Lehman about the culture she and her husband Adam are building within the Wonder Jam. We also got into the challenges that come with doing something for 100 days in a row, why ego isn't always a bad thing, and how your approach to work can change sometimes when you start to get feedback and you get a better understanding of the impact you're having on other people. Hope you enjoy the conversation. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you work on day to day and maybe just list off a few of your side projects that you've also worked on over the years. Yeah. Um, so I, I am a designer and a photographer. I own a business with my husband called the wonder jam and we focus on small businesses. Um, and we would even go so far as to say tiny businesses where um, we are working with the small business owner directly, most likely. And um, we have a team of, gosh, I always get this wrong. I think we're at eight people total now, including us. And I still very much get to do the things that I love to do, which is design and photography, which I love. And, um, but I've dabbled in a lot of other businesses throughout the years. Um, I wrote an ebook with my friend who lives in Australia, which was really fun. Um, and I started another business with my friend David called deaths of the stock photo in 2013. And that was the same time we started the wonder jam. So I like, I always like to say that 2013 was my most collaborative year where I was really open to starting a lot of new things. And, um, I got pretty burnt out, uh, like uh, around that notion, which, isn't probably a healthy thing to, you know, to not want to collaborate. Do you feel like in that time period, you sort of stretched yourself creatively and, and that you grew a lot, but then you sort of had to let yourself, you know, stretch back in the other way, kind of like, like elasticity works. For sure. I feel like Adam and I have given a presentation before a few times called um, the year of yes and how you have years of yes and no um, where it's not always a calendar year, but you have these phases where you say yes to everything and then you learn a lot of lessons and then you start saying no, not because you'll never say yes, but because you can't say yes to everything. And so for me, it was, um, I think it was really taxing to have a lot of, I know this sounds weird, but loyalty to a lot of different collaborators. And um, it was very contrasted by working with my husband. So, you know, I work with my husband and it feels very easy and in a, in the in the best of times and the worst of times you can be really honest and and then I think that was just so different than having partners in other settings. Um and so yeah, 2015 was sort of where I hit the brakes and I wanted to focus on one thing. Um and if I was going to try something else, it would be on my own. And it kind of reminded me of, you know, back in school, everyone is a different kind of group project participant. Um, and I needed to explore a couple of solo things and, and focus in on how, I make, how we make all our money. So after you kind of burned out, what were your steps that you took after that? How did you decide what to do next? Yeah, I feel like for me 
in 2015, I exited Death to the Stock Photo. I wasn't doing any other collaborations. The book that we, um, that I published, we self-published was not after two years, not bringing in revenue anymore. And, um, I think my next steps were addressing my own health. Um, in 2016, I realized a lot of things that I was just, um, like, taking as normal, uh, weren't. And so different health issues had been building up where even just financially and time-wise, I felt like I could address it. So in 2016, I addressed those. I saw a functional integrative, um, MD and took a lot of steps to getting better. And I, I didn't realize just how, much time and energy that would take. And I was really thankful to only be juggling one thing. Um, even though the one thing comes with a lot of different roles and tasks, uh, it was really nice to be able to focus on that. And then, um, yeah. And then I feel like the last two years have sort of flown by. When you stepped away from the things you stepped away from, did you have a sense that you were doing that so that you could take care of your health or were you able to become more aware of your health as a result of making that space at only only after you made that space in your life? Yeah, I think it was only after. Um, the The feelings that I was experiencing when I stepped away from everything else except the Wonder Jam, I just get this feeling. And if something's not right, I get this feeling and I have to act on it and I don't really look back. So after, um, after I thought about exiting death of the stock photo. I decided it. I woke Adam up at like three in the morning and I told him, I think I'm going to leave uh, death of the stock photo. And he was very much like, Oh, are you sure? Do you want to think about it? Um, and I just trust, I really do trust my gut and I don't always have a, a reason or I can't always explain it. And then I think it was after all of that, there was space to check in with myself and all the things that I felt like weren't probably possible, maybe even like subconsciously, I just didn't think that I'd have time to address anything started feeling a lot more um, like urgent. Interesting. Let's go back a little bit to before any of this started before the mm -hmm. wonder jam, before death mm -hmm. to the stock photo, before your book, how did you get from being born to <laughs> now you're doing the things that you do today? Good was question. there, were you always creative in these ways or when did you kind of get a taste of that and start yeah. creatively? That's a good question. I was always creative. I always, what, you know, because it was so long ago and I'm, I'm talking like grade school, I feel like this doesn't sound egotistical, but I was really good in my art classes, like to the point where I think I gave my art teachers like hope, <laughs> like they, you know, they were like, I'm teaching a bunch of fifth graders, but this person is like really blowing everything out of the water. Um, and so I would just, I would be very um, active in the art community, whether it was through my school or my mom and dad got me plugged into um, classes where I was able to learn, I had like semi-private lessons where I was learning watercolor and oil painting and all these different really fine art techniques. And um, I've really narrowed it down to, I think the reason I'm here today is because adults were giving me money for my art at a really young age. And 
I was charging like $300 a painting when I was probably 15. Um, How did you get there? Because that's something, you know, a lot of kids would make art and it would never occur to them. Yeah. What's the thing that got you to the point where you even thought to do that? Yeah, I think for me it was figuring out what those people wanted to pay money for. So I wasn't just drawing pictures of, well, I was. It wasn't that I was selling pictures of um, from my sketchbook of like Christina Aguilera and Sync because I would do like, you know, portraits and just copy pictures from magazines. I was selling paintings of people's homes and um, I would take a picture of their house on film and then I would get it developed and then I would copy it into a large scale oil painting or watercolor. Um, And looking back on it now, I'm 31. I'm like patting myself on the back. Like that was pretty good insight. That's something that someone who has uh, the income to spend money on something like a home portrait, uh, that's what they wanted. That's something that they would pay money for. Um, and so I was doing that for like everyone, my parents knew everyone, my grandparents knew, um, they were strangers to me sometimes, but they were always, there was always some sort of connection, obviously, cause the internet wasn't what it is now. And, um, yeah, I, I was, so I was doing a lot of that and it wasn't until I graduated from high school where I was doing that really regularly. Um, it wasn't until then that my art teacher in high school, he, wrote a letter to me and basically said, what are you going to do? Are you going to become a design major or are you going to do illustration? And I didn't really understand what either of those meant. And I remember thinking graphic design seems great. And so I studied design, um, four years of college centered around a lot of different creative methods and I would say nothing, I didn't learn anything really well, but I was pretty varied. I learned um, through my through my program, I was um, just getting my hands on a, little, a lot of different things, but not mastering any one thing. And I actually am glad for that. There was, a, there was a few years where I was frustrated that my program didn't lead to something where you were, you know, super focused and had this, this niche that was um, incredibly specific. But Um, And then I graduated during the recession. So I was not getting a job in any type of creative field um, with no years of experience. And so I had to get really scrappy. And so I was freelancing. And I think all of those things, I think from, from being, from having adults invest in me at a young age to trying a little bit of everything in college to graduating with no opportunities, I think it, I think that those three things were really impactful. So you graduated 2008? 2009. 2009, right into yeah. the middle of the recession. Yeah. And then it was, what, four or five years before you started your projects like Death to the Stock Photo exactly. and Omega Jam. Exactly. So during that gap period, <laughs> what were you filling your time with? What kind of freelancing were you doing? Yeah. How were you finding those opportunities? What did you do to get through that? Yeah. And how do you think it would be relevant to somebody who maybe could learn from that now who is yeah. not in the middle of a of recession. Yeah. Uh, gosh, you know, it just was not sexy. <laughs> it was very, um, so 2009, I graduated. I got a job at a call center where it was a, a web hosting company, local, um, not very well known. 
and I answered phones. And you know, you know this. No one calls your web no one calls their web hosting company when they're happy. You're never like <laughs> you're never like, hey, just wanted to let you know I love your service. <laughs> so Hey Allie, um, I'm loving this uptime. Yeah, Thanks so yeah, much. Gosh, I, I love that my site's only down during um Black Friday. It's great or Cyber Monday. Um so I did that after I graduated and um I will say there was like a three to four month period before I even got that job where I had no job. Um, I was married. Adam had a job, but I got a dog because, you know, if I'm not going to get a, a job, I might as well get a dog. And then once I was employed there, I mean, it crushed me. It was very exhausting. It was borderline abusive, you know, if in, in the way people talk to you. Um, I was going through a bout of depression and I decided to just quit, like walk out. I can't do this anymore. Do you feel like the bout of depression was related to the work environment? It was. And I think it was, I was still learning a lot about who I was and I am introverted. And so I had no downtime. Like I think I pretty much woke up at 630 in the morning, got ready for work, went to work, talked all day came home, spent time with Adam, my husband, and they just wanted to go to bed early. Um, so, there so, was I not really, so there was not really any room for any kind of creative work inside of that to recharge yourself? Not at all. And, and I could have taken advantage of the evenings, but I was just, I, was, I felt really numb to it all. Um, and so from, I want to say August to the next March or so, I was working there and then I quit. And I tried to freelance on my own. Um, I kind of tried, I was essentially trying to pick it back up from not having addressed it the months being at that call center and it didn't work. Um, I had a blog and I shared, you know, you can hire me if you want, I'm going to try this out. And it, I wasn't making enough money. Um, And so I ended up getting a job with the state of Ohio and I worked for the department of natural resources for about two years. And, um, in 2012, August of 2012, so pretty much six years ago, I quit or yeah, I quit and started freelancing full time again and it worked. Um, but this time I worked a lot of different kinds of jobs and I actually got a lot of feedback. I wrote a blog post earlier this year about how I made by the fourth month of owning my own business or freelancing full time, I made $10,000 in December. Um, so it was December, 2012. And I broke down how I made all that money. And it was, again, it wasn't sexy. It wasn't this, um, fulfilling like dream job, dream client type of work. And I think a lot of people just, they don't get a sense of that, especially now with the way the internet is. I know that there's a lot of places on the internet where things are pretty real. Um, but in general, I think people see, what they want to see. And they also see um, a lot of people portraying that journey, omitting a lot of details. And I like to try to keep it real if I can. So I'm like, you know, this was not, I wasn't doing amazing branding work. I wasn't, I hadn't even picked up a camera, um, but I was working just to, to make money and um, meet some of our goals. Did you ever think about going back to painting as a way to make money? You know what? I didn't. And I don't know why. I don't know why. Um, what came from leaving death to the stock photo and sort of focusing in on, 
on a couple of things for myself. I actually ended up painting in 2016 when I was getting better, like physically getting better. And I sold a lot of paintings. I think I sold 71 paintings at the end of this project. And and you did a hundred of them total, right? This was a, this was one of your hundred day challenge projects. Exactly. So I sold, I think I put up for sale, maybe like 83 sold 71. I made just short of $10,000. Um, but I also lost a lot of money through perception and brand. Um, the Wonder Jam's inquiries went down. And I think it's so powerful how we all portray ourselves on the internet. Like you want to be authentic and be like, I'm painting for fun. This is so great. Oh my gosh, this is so amazing. So many people bought my work. Um, But that becomes ingrained in people's brain. Like this is what Allie's doing now. Um, And that's, that wasn't my job. That wasn't my full-time job. Um, But all through that, through that initial like branding, you know, I wanted to become a branding person. I liked doing print design. And back when I started working for myself, I never thought about painting. Um, and I have no idea why I think I was really focused on the new me and wanting to make that work. It's interesting that the inquiries for the wonder jam went down when you were painting and you were sharing all those paintings. Yeah. Was that just because you were posting less about things related to the Wonder Jam and there was just a much higher volume of things you were doing around your painting in your own social media? That's a good question. I do think, you know, so we think of branding as how you, the perception of your company or you sits in people's brains. So like if you say, um, if I, if I reference you on the internet, people are like, oh, what do I think of when I think of Joseph? It's this. Or when I talk about the Wonder Jam, people think about, oh, you guys do workshops or you have this membership or you make photography. Um, and I think for a really, for a hundred days in a row, people saw me as a painter. And when I would see them in the grocery store or out in a, at an event, they wanted to talk about that. Um, And in a way, I think I was just kind of, I was diluting a little bit of that, um, a little bit of that brand. And so. Do you feel like you talked to anybody in that time about your painting who you felt you should have been talking about your work at the Wonder Jam with? Yeah. A lot of our clients. And you know, what's interesting is since that project the Wonder Jam has turned existing clients into a high percentage of our income. Like we right now, um, how do I word this? We right now don't just require new interest. Like we, we have a lot of clients on retainer now. We are almost more considered continued partners through the course of uh, our clients' businesses and, and journey. And so our existing clients in 2016, when I was painting, they were just like, well, I don't want to bother you. I know you're doing this project or, oh, this is so interesting. Let's talk about, let's talk about these paintings where I think we were losing out on a lot of conversations about how can we utilize the existing client base that we have to book more work. Um, and so 
a combination of just, I think, perception. And, you know, when you see someone on vacation, you don't want to bother them. I think people like saw it as that. It almost looked like a sort of a sabbatical kind of thing. Exactly. Like, well, she's obviously really chilled out. Like she's, you know, she's not, I wasn't drinking that year. Like it was an isolating year. I need, it needed to happen, but I think people felt they like, they didn't want to bother me. And you can't really run a business if you put out that vibe that no one should talk to you, you know? Is there, is there anything that you, you feel like you could have done differently to hedge against that, that would have changed that? It's hard to say because I think that, you know, part of the hundred day project is you share about it every day on Instagram. They, they encourage you to do that. Um, so I don't really know, like if I had, you know, altered the rules to fit looking back, like if I had altered the rules and not posted about it and just, you know, at the end of the hundred days said, Hey, I did this project for myself. These are the paintings. Um, you know, I'd like to think that our inquiries and booking work would have been, um, more consistent, but at this end of the day, that $9,500, the day I posted the paintings was also very helpful. You know, that was like a, a quick, almost 10 K that kind of, um, made up the difference of, of the amount that we had missed out on. So, um, I, maybe if I had posted, uh, more cons- consistently about other things as well as the paintings, cause I, pr- I pretty much just was focusing on creating that content. Um, so this past year you did a hundred days of blogging and that is a little bit closer to what most people associate with like a creative services business. Yes. Did that change the way the inquiries came in at all? Did it affect it in a positive or a negative way? I didn't feel like I noticed any difference. Um, The year before that, 2017, I did 100 days of styling for photography, and that helped our business a lot. Um, People were seeing that I could, I had... um, Break that down a little bit for people who don't know what that means. Yeah. So when I first explained it, I think a lot of people were a little um, interested in what what the project would actually be like. But basically, I wanted to get better at styling, which means, you know, when you see a picture in a magazine, someone was there to pick out the, the linens on in the kitchen and the different um, flatware and dishware, maybe like styling the food to look messy, but still beautiful. All of the things that we see in photography, most likely, unless it's candid, is styled. And so you have a stylist on set, um, if the budget allows, and then the photographer takes the picture. Um, what's different about how I work is, and I think it's also has to do with the fact that I live in Columbus, Ohio, is that a lot of our clients don't have budget for a stylist or they don't understand what that would do for them. Um, and there also aren't a lot of full-time stylists here. And so I style and photograph, um, all of our shoots. And so I wanted to get better at that eye, like what makes a photo be visually pleasing and feel natural, but also not chaotic. Um, and so I wanted to style a photo every day for a hundred days, but of course I was also taking the picture. So it was a great, a great exercise in lighting and, and technique and editing. Um, and so it really just became, I would say, if I were to look back a photography 
project. You know, it was, it, it kind of encompassed all of those aspects. And so I was able to experiment with color, um, monochromatic color, uh, flat lays and food and people, um, using flowers and, um, everyday objects. And some were really bright, some were really dark. And I think it just helped people think about photography differently. Um, it also, what came out of that was another personal project um, that I actually collaborated with two other photographers um, with a portrait series. And so it really, I've always said the 100 day project is a, is an exercise momentum. And it's when you do something every day for a hundred days, you only generate more creativity. You only generate more ideas. Um, and the minute you stop that stagnation just leads to, well, I don't have a good idea or I don't know what to do with this. Um, so 2017 with that led to, I think, a, an explosion in my photography services. And this year with 100 days of blogging, I think it helped um, personal relationships a lot. Interesting. So there's something interesting about doing something for 100 days in a row. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like being able to do something for 100 days in a row makes you feel like you have like a track record that's impressive to yourself. Mm -hmm. Are you, why do you do that? Why commit to mm -hmm. something like that instead of just letting it happen whenever? Yeah. Um, so a couple of different reasons. The first I would say there's something really fun about doing like, I don't run. Um, but I, I think people like marathons because they train for it and then they, they run this epic amount of miles with a group of people and I think for me, the 100 day project, the first year I did it felt like I was running a marathon with other people where, um, we had a plan, um, we were in it together. We could encourage each other. 2017, I felt a little more like I'm just kind of focused on my project. Um, and then this year I wasn't really aware of a lot of other people who were doing it. And, you know, to be totally honest, Instagram changed their algorithm and I wasn't seeing a lot of people's posts and I don't have time, you know, I'm not searching for everything. Um, so I think that's the first reason. The second is after the first year, 2017 was my second year. So many people that I knew were doing it because they saw me do it. And I thought that that was so cool. Um, some were trying painting like, cause they had seen me do it. Some people were just trying something else and that was really fun. You know, it was fun to see other people watch, my first year doing it and decide, I think that looks like something that's going to benefit me or that looks like it, it was a good experience. Um, it wasn't until this year that I decided, I think I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to do it in my own time frame, And I think I'm going to do it in the winter. Um, this nationally or internationally, this, this challenge happens from April to July every year. And that is like my literal, like, I feel like I'm emerging from a hibernation and I don't really like being tied down to do something every day when the weather's getting nicer and I want to travel. Um, and so I think that it's, it's interesting if I do do it again, I, I don't necessarily need that, that group. Um, yeah. That group mentality. Do you find the seasons affect you emotionally or mentally in different ways in terms of the way you create things? Yeah. I, so I used to think that um, we actually had a business 
kind of like a business life coach come in with an art therapist as an event here in our space and other people attended. And she talked about how we all have seasons in creativity or, um, you know, inspiration. And some people's literally align with the seasons that they're in. So winter being a time of self-reflection and, um, you know, taking time off where spring is where you're sort of emerging into summer, which would be a time where you're thriving and feeling really creative. Um, I feel like now at this point, I do need something which is why I would want to do the 100 day project on my own terms. The the winter, I think it would be really good for me to um, get that momentum built up in my life because in the summer, our clients are all small business owners. They tend to be our peers. So our age thirties or older, their kids are home from school. We see a huge slowdown in the summer. Um, And I would like to take that time to also slow down and, um, travel more and yeah, just not be waiting around. Like, well, let's listen to our customers' life cycles and, and year cycles and, and mirror it. Interesting. Yeah. Winter for sure is winter and summer are both slow times for me as well, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's different. It's different for each one. Cause it's really, like, it's like summer is summer is slow in a way that it's like, you can still have conversations about things that are coming up. Mm-hmm. but then winter, it's just after a certain point in the winter, it's just dead silent because everybody gets busy. Yeah. I feel like for us, summer is like you said, people are still moving forward. I think they're just ch- more chill. Like they're not in a huge rush. Um, everyone has trips planned. So they're like, Oh, let's start this project. But by the way, I'm gone for 10 days in you know July. Is there a particular time of the year or a particular start of a month during the year um, where you feel like a switch flips and things just go from really slow and really quiet to really, really Mm -hmm. busy? Um, Yeah, I think it'll be Tuesday (laughs) after Labor Day. (laughs) Um, I feel like that long weekend is like the last hurrah, which, you know, I think as a, I don't know, do you agree with this? Like as a small business owner, you kind of get out of this whole like, Ooh, like, you know, 4th of July weekend. It wasn't until we started hiring people where one of them was like, do we get Martin Luther King Jr. Day off? And we were like, we were like, well, first of all, we're like, first of all, you're a contractor. You don't, you can work whenever you want. Second, uh, sure. Or like, we're going to be working, but you don't have to work. Um, and so I think like the labor day for a lot of our clients is sort of this last, like the kids are back in school. This is the last long weekend for a while. Um, and people start thinking about the last quarter. That actually, And it's cool to anticipate. And I mean, you and I and Adam and anyone listening who owns their own business, you kind of, I start to take advantage of these weekends now, either, you know, we have social things going on, but we can also tackle our email or things that we've sort of been putting off because your email slows down. And, um, it's a good thing, you know, it's just such a different mentality, I think for us. Um, and then we tend to find post-holiday be really busy. Um, so after the new year, um, right now people are trying to launch something around the new year. So every inquiry that I'm talking to right now is seeking an early January, like reveal, um, 
I actually gave a copywriter some advice a couple of weeks ago that basically uh-huh. said, oh, you don't have any work. Why don't you just start sending emails with the subject line, are you ready for Christmas? Oh, it's and so they did, true. They did that and they started getting work. <laughs> right, right. It's like, you know, you want to think that people are organized and it's great when they are, but, you know, I just had a call with a with a business that wants a new website and they're like, we'd love a, you know, post new year launch. And I said, okay, well then you need to get back to me by next week. Um, you know, this isn't, if you, if you think about how there's four months left of the year, um, you have to take into account Christmas, Thanksgiving, you know, any other holiday that people celebrate. And that takes up a huge chunk of time. Um, so yeah, I season wise, I'm starting to adjust to reframe my own expectation and um, really make it so that in the summer next year, um, the thing that I know is coming won't be such a shock or it won't be such a disappointment um, and I can have things lined up. So even though you know you'll be busy in the winter, mm-hmm. you're still moving your own personal projects into that time so you can kind of batch all yeah. of your busyness together instead of letting yeah. it sort of bleed all over the rest of the year. Exactly. And and for me, I think the key will be maybe like a February, March, April, 100-day project for myself mm-hmm. where in Ohio, um, it's really cold and there's no it, there's no, nothing fun happening. Um, and I don't really know what I would do. I mean, I considered quitting the 100 day project this year while I was blogging. Cause I'm also, I mean, you, you probably get this, you, you get older and you stop caring about what people think. And if I quit, I think two years ago, what I, w- I would have felt like a failure. And this For year sure. I was just like, I don't, I don't care, but I, I kept at it. Why do you think you would have felt like a failure? What does that mean to you? And do you worry about what other people think of the things you're putting out? Or is that, so have mm-hmm. you sort of left that behind? Uh, so to, you know, when I first started doing these projects, I think I wouldn't want to, it, the projects have always been received really well. Like the first two creative projects that I did, the feedback was amazing. Um, and it wasn't a, oh, what will people think of me? I think it was, um, I think it was really a self-seeking instant gratification thing. Like it was, well, if I quit, you know, I'm missing out on a lot of feedback or I'm missing out on a lot of, um, affirmations of like, Hey, this is good. Um, but something switches with those projects by day 50, you don't care what people think. Like you don't care that people like it. You might post something that you love that doesn't get that much reaction and you, it doesn't matter, but I would say the first half of the project, it, it can be almost in an unhealthy way for me of too fueling. Um, cause you're like, Oh my gosh, I made, this is day one. I made something, I'm putting it out. What will people love it? Have you gotten any reactions to pieces you've put out on your blog or your paintings or your styling where you just put it out and you maybe got a stronger reaction or a different kind of reaction than you thought you would? Um, yeah, I, I almost start to feel like I know, I know what will do well. Um, two different things. One, I did a lot of colorful paintings that first year and the one black and white 
painting that I put up got a lot, got a really great reaction. And it was one of the first things to sell. And people would message me and be like, well, I wanted that black and white one. It's gone. So like, I'm not going to get anything. Um, and I was surprised by that. Cause I don't know. It just was just like, I just tried it. Um, and I didn't really push into it afterwards. Like I think it, because I found out that people loved it so much, even later, um, I didn't quote capitalize on it. Um, and then I would say overall, and maybe I would love to hear what you think. My captions, when I share something like my thought process or my interpretation or, or any kind of mass, I call it like mass vulnerability, can really influence how something is, is interpreted by people, in my opinion. So if I just post a picture that I take and I leave no context, I think that that is received completely different than of the same photo with how I felt while I created it or my intention or um, a story. And it makes sense. You know, like I, I, it makes total sense to me. You know, I can see why people feel a lot of pressure. I definitely feel that the context of the photo, you know, when you post an Instagram photo, if you, even if you add a caption that's completely unrelated to it, mm-hmm. that has like an inspirational message or something that's thought provoking or something that's nice. Yeah. A lot of the time, that's the thing that'll get the reaction even more than the photo. Oh, for sure. It's like the photo is the carrier um, right. of the message. And it's so- almost like a Trojan horse that gets it. <laughs> yeah. you know, everyone opens Instagram thinking that they're going to look at you know, pictures of people's food and the bands that they're seeing play. And then they yep. see like, like I posted a photo of some grass mm-hmm. in the sunset with a quote from one piece, which is a comic book that I like, but it was like yeah. a really, a really nice quote about living life and staying alive. And if you stay alive, then good things will happen. And, yeah. you know, I posted it on Instagram and Facebook and it's just a photo of some grass, but <laughs> the quote is the thing that got people right. to pay attention to it and, and to comment on it. And the comments right. weren't about the photo. It was about what was being said, you know, the context. Exactly. It's so, it's weird too. So after blogging for a hundred days, Instagram has become such a blogging platform in my opinion. Um, People write a lot and it works. And I found myself frustrated because I felt like I was just posting the same thing in two different places. Like I was posting maybe a snippet or the entire thing on Instagram and then on my blog. And it felt like, why am I even logging into WordPress? Um, and so it it's definitely to me more about that message than a picture. And I think a picture, my I mean, I'm a photographer, so like I want people to feel something if I take a photo. I want them to in the most like you, you talked about the grass and, and the sunset for a while. I was just posting um, really like bright and airy photos, which tend to do really well on Instagram. And the reason why I started um, the project last year with the two other photographers was because I wanted to train people to stop thinking that light, white, bright photos were the only kind of photo that's beautiful. And so my portraiture was really, really dark. And a year later, someone messaged me and said, um, since your project, since your portrait project, I've seen photography and portraits in a completely different light. And, um, that meant a lot to me because that was 
so much the driver and why I started doing them. Um, and I know that if I posted a bright, white, airy photo of myself in a really cute Airbnb, it would do really well. And I don't know, sometimes it makes me sad, you know? It's almost like you look at it doing really well on Instagram and it doing really well with a human being as two totally separate things. Yeah, exactly. And that's a struggle I think all of us have in our work when we're trying to help our clients. Like, how do you not try to reinvent marketing or design or logos or whatever you're doing, but how do you also take a stand for something that is unique or how do you become a trendsetter or how do you stay timeless? All of those things are so interesting to me um, because a lot of the companies that our clients admire who have tried something new and succeeded, um, they still don't get that, okay, well now you have to go try to do something different to succeed. You can't just piggyback on, on that. And so I think the whole conversation of, you know, if I want to get a message across, I know the formula on Instagram to get the most engagement, but it's weird that I know that. And so I try not to do it, (laughs) even though it's not always a bad thing. So what are the projects you're working on right now? Is it just the Wonder Jam and you were also doing a portrait project? You were doing Mm -hmm. some photo shoots recently. Um, Mm -hmm. What are the things you're working on right now? So right now, the Wonder Jam. um, To me, the Wonder Jam has become not just my client work, but our our team and culture and all of that stuff. Um, And so I think our clients are we've had such an amazing, I would say even two years of quality clients and um, just a lot of mutual respect and, and it's been really great. So I'm doing, um, I'm always working on a few websites for clients. I'm working on a lot of branding. We're, we're helping a lot of clients um, really like launch their business. And so in the past we would just, like, here's your logo. We made your website. Good luck. Um, and now we're very much helping people build their email list and, um, you know, get everything in line with their, with their social ads and just becoming a lot more of a partner. And so, um, it almost reflects more of like an incubator model. It does. It feels that way. And and in a way it feel, there's a lot of pressure. Um, Mm there was less pressure when it would just, here's your logo, here's your website. When it was kind of like taking orders at a drive-through versus feeling more like you're invested in the outcomes. Exactly. It's like um, working with, it it felt like before we were working on like a kitchen remodel for someone's house and not necessarily like checking the architecture blueprints to make sure their house doesn't fall down. Mm. Um, And so that is just, like I said, it feels like a lot more responsibility, but um, it's been really great. And I don't necessarily think that for the clients that we serve, there's another alternative um, without spending about three times as much money with like a more traditional agency. Um, and so it's it's still really fulfilling. I, I enjoy it so much. I feel a real bond with our clients. And then I am working on that portrait project just on my own. And so um, I did a, a weekend of portraits for women back in, um, August and I'm doing another one in October. And to me, that's like some of the stuff that makes my heart sing. It, 
it's really powerful to me to, and I've explained it in this really weird way, but from an ego standpoint, it's very fulfilling to take a picture of a woman who tells you that she hates photos of herself and then she loves the photo that you take. Hmm. It's like, it's like very addicting um, in the most um, honest way to explain it. And it's really moving to have them share that photo with the world or whoever's listening. And um, I have, I've respected other photographers in the, in the world who talk about that where they're like, if I can take a picture of you, um, a photographer that I love, her name's Sue Bryce. She's like, if I could take a photo of you every year of your life and you love it, you will have like, that changes the perception of, a human being. Um, and for me, a lot of the motivation has been, I know that women see themselves in the mirror and, and most likely like a lot of times they like the way that they look. Um, but when someone candidly takes a photo of them, they see it and they're like, do I really look like that? And they're, they're kind of surprised. And so I like, even from a more technical standpoint, talking about angles and lenses and, um, all of those things affect how you look in a photo. Um, and you are still you. So let's capture the best side of you. Um, so that's been fun. I think there's something interesting about, you know, when you're standing in front of a mirror, you may not, you may not consciously realize it, but you're positioning yourself in a way mm-hmm. second by second, you're sort of positioning yourself in a way where you can look at yourself and go, yeah, I look pretty yep. good. But <laughs> yeah. then you go out and and that dynamic subconsciously that you're where you're constantly adjusting yourself to get to that point is not present in the candid photos. No. And that's sort of like the disconnect. You're still the same person. It's just the person taking the candid shot is not subconsciously thinking about how to do that with you. Right. And it kind of came from my own experiences where I honestly, I don't seek out getting my photo taken a lot, but I've never really felt like I could fully trust someone to consider me in a photo. Like Mm. sometimes I would feel like a photographer, like come and take photos, you know, of our space or while we're working. And I, I truly feel like when I'm taking a picture of someone, I'm, I want to paint them in their best light. Um, and I'm not even talking about traditional or, or cultural norms of like what we consider to be beautiful. Um, I think it's more like, hey, when I think of when I think of um, my sister, like this is what I see in her, and this is the these are the things that I love. And um, when when I when I take my camera and I set it down, how does she sit when she feels in her most natural state? So there's all these different elements that I think if if we all as photographers considered the person and, and talk to them. Like, I love asking, do you have a photo of yourself on your phone that you love so that I can see, Oh, they, their hair is in front of their ear or, um, you know, all of those things. The thing I have to tell them though, is when we interact with each other as humans, you're never frozen. Like you're never in one position for more than a second and you're blinking and you're, you're shifting and, um, and so photos are this weird frozen, it's just weird, you know? So um, it's been really fun. And, and that has been something that has led to more work um, 
I had avoided taking pictures of people for a few years. And I think now that I've done it on my own terms, people are coming to me where I can lead that process. And so I'm doing more of that, which has been really fun. How did it look before? Did you feel like there was another time you were doing it where you weren't doing it on your own terms or you were just reacting to somebody needing something from you and yeah. you hadn't really put thought into how you wanted to approach it? Yeah, I think before I I wasn't experimenting a lot with light and posing. And so I would have these moments where I would send photos and someone would be like, oh, I look fat. I look ugly. I look, and they were using all these terms that um, weren't true or were true and they're still beautiful. Or they'd say, my cheeks are big. And I'd say, everyone's cheeks get big when they smile. Or um, my one eye is squintier than the other. And I would say, cool, everyone's is. Um, And so instead of like getting offended, I think this year it's been what do you love about yourself? Um, oh, you think that I get smaller when you smile? Well, I'm going to have the other side of your face be closer to me. And um, instead of just trying to like, you know, brush off how they feel, um, work with them. Or if they say, um, I love my body right now, like awesome. Or if someone says, um, I hate how this shoulder is wider. You know, like there's just all these things where we can just – And you adjust Um, the way you're working with them in the shoot based on things that they say like that? Yeah, yeah. And I'm never encouraging someone to talk about what they don't like about themselves. I think I just, I show them, if if the shoot allows, I'll show them the back of my camera. Um, And yeah, I I will just, because like I said, we're, our bodies are always changing. And so if someone's like, oh, I, you know, um, I'm not as tone, toned as I used to be because I got injured and I used to work out all the time. Um, well, I can, I can pose you to um, show you that like you still look really great. Like you still are beautiful and your, your limbs all work and you can still run a mile. You know, there's just a lot of different things that um, it's not that I can change someone's journey of loving themselves. Um, but you can listen. Yeah, listen and and uh, and change how how I help guide them through the shoot. And so before I think I was just getting offended for for them or I was feeling like well I can't deal with these people if they hate themselves. Um because to you was it like you were taking the photo the way you thought the photo would be best and yeah. In in the more recent ones, it sounds like you're taking everything they say into consideration and creating something that you're proud of too, but you're proud of it because of the way they feel about it. Exactly. I think before I was I was also um I probably also wasn't as focused on making them ease into the shoot, you know, so there's times where if you're like in a rush, you're like I'll just get these photos taken. Um, people don't really loosen up until like 20 to 30 minutes in. Um, mm. and so for portraits, I actually edit backwards cause the end is the best. Um, Oh, interesting. Like they're very, they're very comfortable by the, by the last photo. And so, um, if I start at the beginning, I kind of like, it feels off and I spend too much time on the edit. But if I just start at the end, by the time I get to the front, the first few photos, I just get rid of them. Um, how long do you usually do a shoot for? 
So not long. So the last portrait session I did, I was spending either 10 minutes or 45 minutes with people. Um, the 10 minutes, it's quick. Um, but I, I'm okay. I, I buffered it in a way that I still had 30 minutes. So no one really knew that. For me, I like would rather exceed an expectation than try to just fill out 30 minutes of shooting. Mm-hmm. Cause 30, shooting for 30 minutes is a lot of photos. Um, and so I will like sit and talk with them. The first person that showed up last portrait weekend, um, we talked for 15 minutes before ever sitting down to take a picture. And she talked a lot about her struggle with self image and um, how her friends encouraged her to do this. And so um, I will be spending more time with them than 10 minutes, but it doesn't take long um, after I've gotten to know them to, to get them in into a pose. And then um, this next month I'll be doing um, 15 minutes, but again, I have, I have 30 minutes allotted. So um, and then I usually, I deliver like one to five photos. So you said that when you deliver a photo and you feel like the reaction is you delivered something to them that made them feel good about themselves, even if maybe they have self-criticisms, then mm-hmm. that's a really good thing for your ego that you feel really good about that. I feel like so, first I feel so happy for them because mm. we all know what it feels like to get a photo that you like of yourself. I mean, it feels good. Um, but it is, it feels like I solved a problem or I solved a puzzle or I like, I strategized and I, um, it feels good for someone to feel like you saw them. Yeah, for in sure. The way that they see themselves. And so that's where, I, I mean, I've been really honest with a couple people. I'm like, it feels really good to, to get an, a response that's like, oh my God, this is my favorite photo of myself. I wanted to get into that a little bit because I feel like ego is kind of a dirty word to a lot of people, Mm -hmm. but ego is not a bad thing. It's just being egotistical. That's really the bad thing. Yeah. What's what's your relationship with your ego like? And how are you self-aware of that? That's a good question. So I did StrengthsFinder last year, I think last year, 2017. Yeah. And one of my strengths is, um, significance. Um, and how I was told or how, how the strengths finder coach interpreted it is you like, you like it when people listen to you and trust you and all of that stuff. Um, it's like in the relation field of strengths, I think. And a lot of it is just, you don't want to, she, she kind of laid it out in layman's terms, no pun intended. (laughs) She laid it out like you don't want to be around people who don't listen to you or respect your opinion or take you into consideration, which to me, I was like, oh, great. That doesn't even seem like a strength. That seems like <laughs> that's weird, you know? Um, and and then I think my, sec- my, my fourth strength is relator. And so it's um, I can – a lot of people feel, can feel connected to me, but I have a small, a small group of friends. Um, and it kind of made me think about why I've always loved the idea of blogging and I've never had a problem sharing things on the internet. Um, and I would say I could be very uh, egotistical in the past where it wasn't until my grandpa died last year and I was on the phone with a um, 
college student. She was interviewing me for some class about careers. And she said something like, I can't believe we're talking. Like I'm totally fangirling. (laughs) And I had, it wasn't until I experienced grief at a really deep level that I was like, why? Like, that's stupid. Not like you're stupid, but I am just like you, just a person. Um, And I think leading up to that, I would have been like, I would have kind of been like, oh, that's kind of nice. You know, like it would have kind of gone to my head a little bit. Um, Do you feel like grief and loss put things into perspective for you and and made you feel? Yeah. I don't know if smaller is the right word, but it might be. It is. I think for me, it was like, um, it was like this moment where I thought, oh my gosh, all of us will feel this. Like, most likely. I mean, unless you completely keep people out of your life. Um, oh my gosh, we all have this in common. Um, you start thinking of all the people that have experienced this and you've just not been able to relate. Um, obviously everyone's, everyone grieves differently, but that loss is universal. Um, and I've never felt more, I'm just a regular person. Um, and I think to be totally honest, and maybe it goes back to people paying me for my work when I was young or people, I was, I was um, the oldest grandkid by like a decade. So it was very like um, all eyes on me. And, you know, I do think that affects you. And um, like you said, ego not being a bad thing, but I've never been accused of being not confident. Um, but I think grief, like you said, puts everything into perspective and the things that, um, that made me feel special before, I don't think that that is as true anymore. I'm curious to ask what your thoughts on busyness are, because you do so many different things and you just seem to, you know, you'll pick up a project because you want to do it and then a lot of them take a lot of work. What's your relationship to busyness and how do you manage your time and how do you make sure that you're spending Mm -hmm. enough time on them to show to yourself that you really care about it, but also Mm -hmm. not so much that you burn out? Where's the balance and how do you find that? That's a good question. Um, I I read a quote once in, I actually want to say someone else posted it and it was from that, I think it was like, Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. Mm. I think that's what it's called. And someone in the book talked about people will say to him, oh my gosh, like you must be so busy. And he kind of, his perception of that was, no, I've, I'm very organized and busyness to him conveyed chaos. Um, and so, and I also remember listening to someone speak a designer, uh, I forget who it was. And she talked about, um, reframing that like, Oh, things are so busy. Like, how are you doing? Oh, things are so crazy. Things are so busy. Um, into like something along the lines of like, I'm living my dream or things have been really productive or I get to do all this stuff. Exactly. Like we all know what it feels like when there's not a lot going on. And it's in our context, that's not a, good thing sometimes. Um, and so 
I have found that even when things are slower, I still fill my time. And so I would say my last uh, cheesy quote is like only boring people are bored. Uh, (laughs) And I, I resonated with it. Not because I, I don't even really know any boring people, but have you ever been bored before? No. Have you? Nope. No. Not a day <laughs> in my life. I don't know what that's like. I I feel like there's so much more I want to do day to day. And that's not a badge of pride for me. It, it's, no. It's a thing that's actually kind of perplexing for me because it makes it hard to understand or like have empathy for people who are bored. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm better than them. I don't think I'm more no. interesting than them. No. Like if anything, I kind of envy people who can be bored. Me too. Or like, um, it takes me a long time to get into vacation mode, mm-hmm. um, and like sit around. Um, and I remember one of my best friends, she, she has kids and she, she looked at me one day and said, um, and she loves her kids. This was also a long time ago. I don't want this to, you know, out of context. But she basically was like, if I was as passionate about things as you are, I don't know if I would have had kids so early. Um, and she is such a good mom. She's a stay-at-home mom. She's amazing. Um, but I think that, you know, we all have different interests. And how we fill our life and our time is going to be different. And, um, But I, I am never – I'm never bored. I'm – my schedule's never just like, this actually would be my biggest struggle right now is I would love a couple of weeks where it dated, there's a couple of days sprinkled throughout where there's nothing on my calendar, but I, I've never had that happen. So I don't know why I'm still thinking that it's going to happen. Um, so in six years of owning my business, I've never just been like, well, my Friday's free. What should I do? Um, and that's a good thing. I'm thankful. Things come up and you slot them in the time you have available. Exactly. And, then, and then by the time it occurs to you, oh, it would be nice to have some days. It's like the days are full. <laughs> exactly. And so now I'm looking at, I have a couple of free days in October, but if someone wants to do a project or have a meeting, I'll put it in the next available day. Um, I do block time off if I really need to, like Adam's birthday is coming up next, or I guess this month now in September. So I have nothing on that day. Um, and so I have to treat all areas of my life in my calendar the same way I treat work. Um, I have yeah, to block well, it off. Last year, I totally scheduled, uh, or maybe it was a year before last, I scheduled myself to work on my birthday by accident. You did? <laughs> yeah. You, did you keep it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I, um, so busyness to me is like, if that's what someone wants to call productivity or having things to do, then I'm busy a lot. Um, but I think the, the term I don't resonate with a ton. Hmm. Do you ever have people tell you that they think you're lucky that you get to work when you want, or that you get to work on what you want or be your own boss? I think because a lot of my friends right now are entrepreneurs. They get it. They do get it. And I don't have a lot of friends who work nine to fives. Mm. Um, My dad has said that like, oh, you're so lucky you get to set your schedule. Um, And, but I just had someone say, and I would actually love to hear what you would say if someone said this to you. She looked at me and she was an intern for another small business owner. And we were in our studio taking pictures and she looked at me and goes, do you just love every day? 
And it really, it really hit me. It was a really good reminder of these are choices that I've made when I am stressed. Why? If I'm having a bad day, it's probably my fault. I would say exactly the same thing. <laughs> so everything, everything that ever happens to me is my fault. Is my fault. A hundred percent. Exactly. And so it was a really good, um, she actually left me speechless for like a second. Like I was like, uh, I go, you know what? You would think that, um, I don't love every day, but that's my choice. Like that's my, that was my fault. <laughs> um, and it really made me think about the things we talked about at the beginning of this episode, which were really not fun times. Um, and now it's like night and day. And so it was a really good reminder um, that the things that are hard now were the things that I wanted then. So it's like you got to choose that hardness and take it yeah. on because it's taking you where you want to go. Yeah. You know, it's like having team members that keep things moving is its own challenge, but I just, we just went to California and I, I really didn't have to work that much. And that wouldn't have been the case two years ago. Um, so it's great. Do you feel like everything you're doing is driven by some larger dream or do you feel like it's just month, do you feel like you're just taking it month by month, year by year and kind of intuitively letting it all unfold the way it does? For me, it's always been the latter until this year. Um, Adam has spent a decent amount of time working with me to figure out what the ultimate goals are. Um, and I think the month by month works if we were doing this on our own. Um, but we have to be thinking of what kind of evolution do our team members get to participate in? Like, how do they start to make more money? How do we retire? Do we want to own a home? Are we ever going to have kids? You know, like there's certain choices as a business owner you do need to start making depending on what those answers are. Yeah, it's sort of like if you don't consciously make them, they get made for you by the default. Exactly, which would probably be when are we going to retire? Never. Um, and so... You know, we had the, the, the conversation looked a little bit like, uh, when do you want to retire? And then I said, uh, I don't know. Well, we got to figure that out. And then I say, well, how long are we going to live? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Okay, well, how, how long do you think you're going to, you know, it's like these weird. How long are you good for? Yeah. Like how long do you want to live for? <laughs> yeah. Do you right? want to um, I remember talking to some other entrepreneur. They're like, yeah, my grandma's like 106 years old. I go, well, I do not have that planned for my retirement. <laughs> so I hope that I do not live that long. Um, and so exactly, I think those choices get made for you. And um, there's just something different when you're not in your 20s. Like in your 20s, you, it's sort of like this, it feels so far off. Um, it's sort of a free for all. You're feeling it out. You're figuring it out. Yeah. I think that can be good because a lot of people are in a hurry in their twenties to have it all figured out. And that yeah. maybe leads them to not be as honest with themselves as they should be and not figure out as many things as they should and not try as many things so they can really even 
even bump into or be adjacent to the thing that ends up being the thing for them. Exactly. Like if I were making these decisions at age 24, um, you get why someone would get a very maybe corporate high paying job that would lead to this sort of financial success or this kind of 401k or, you know, those things that, um, if anything, I would just be a proponent of people like talking about money earlier in their life. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people I talked to, like their parents either did a great job of breaking that down or forcing them to save. Um, but I've financially made some really stupid decisions and that was the only way I would have learned. Like my mom was trying to, you know, teach me and there was just, you can't, you can't just transfer life lessons onto other people. Yeah. I think we need to talk more as a culture about how much things cost financially and how to make financial decisions around those things. Agreed. Including college education and things like that, where people are getting an enormous amount of debt for things that they may not even end up ever doing anything with and then justifying it based on, well, it was a good experience. Yes. Even though it's a terrible experience to be in debt now and have to take this corporate job to pay it off. But then also we need to educate people about the opportunity costs of not knowing what you're going to do and then just doing something just because like you can actually, you can kind of suffer your way through your twenties and figure it out without going through all of that and putting yourself into that position. I totally agree. And, and I think, um, I just said this to Adam actually on our way to, to come to this recording, which was until you are running a business let's say service-based business, because I don't own a product-based business. Um, You know, people will hear like revenue numbers that we maybe we mention, or um, they see our clients are just putting themselves on payroll after six years. And there is not a lot of transparency about all of that. Not that small business owners are, we owe it to society to tell all of our, you know, financial secrets or, or insights, but um you know, I think when people see that we're, we're doing well, it's the expectation is like, you know, either you make a ton of money or you're never going to make any money. And there's so many times where I love to tell people like when I was working for the state of Ohio, yeah, I had good health insurance and they were, you know, putting money into retirement um, matching and stuff like that. But my paycheck was like $682 every two weeks. Like, owning a business was a huge pay increase for myself. Mm. Um, and so many people, which I get who may might be making way more than what I was making. I get that, that, that transition would be a lot more difficult or if you have like four kids or, you know, I know that my, my situation was unique, but I wish more people talked about how there's no ceiling. Um, if you are interested in owning your own business. Yeah, it's only really been in the last 15 years that you could even see any of this. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't know anybody who owned a business. Me neither. The idea of owning a business was actually still foreign to me when I dropped out of college and started Mm -hmm. trying to freelance and Mm -hmm. kind of fumbled my way through it with what information there was available at the time. Yeah. It's just, our culture doesn't talk a lot about how possible it is if you learn the skills. Yeah. I, I agree. And did you come from a background where entrepreneurship or business were sort of 
a prominent part of your life? Not really. And were you already aware? Were you already aware of that at any in any way before you started freelancing, or did that all come from the internet? For me, it all came from pretty much the internet. So my grandpa, who I just mentioned, passed last year. He was a um, he owned his own business, multiple businesses throughout his life. But I didn't really get insight into it. It's not like when we sat down, we were talking about the ins and outs. And um, he was actually in more of like the technology computer industry before it became mainstream. Um, And so I didn't really have an example. Um, And when I graduated, like blogs were really popular and I had just joined Twitter in 2009. Um, So there wasn't really a lot out there. I think it still goes back to someone when I was younger, handing me a check for 300 and being like, okay, you know, or, someone saying, can you paint this? And me saying, yeah, I can do that. And then doing it. Um, And I would present it in front of people. Like I would see them cry or be happy. And so um, all the things that I think a lot of my peers can struggle with, which is charging enough money, um, saying yes to something you're not so sure you can do or presenting your work and making it an experience. I think those things were just sort of naturally ingrained in me that I've just, I'm thankful to have a partner like Adam to help me run the business um, and be really invested in the money side of things and how the business operates. Um, I can't imagine doing that on my own. How do you split things up? Because I don't think we talked about that when I spoke with him. Yeah. So um, before he was involved, we really didn't talk a lot of I didn't talk about strategy with our clients, my clients. Um, And so when he joined, he's very much like self-taught. He reads so much. I read a lot of fiction. He reads a ton of nonfiction. Um, And so he brings a ton of strategy to the table. And so he not only has his own small business coaching clients, but when we're working with clients, his whole you know, I might be representing the visual portion of the brand, but he leads a lot of the strategy or voice messaging, um, just a lot of that strategy for our clients, which has been huge. Um, I do all business development pretty much. Uh, like I negotiate, I book clients, get them onboarded. And he spends a lot of time every day in the books, you know, just like looking at projections or reconciling. Like we, we still have CPA bookkeeper, financial advisor, but, um, you know, as we've even in our thirties now started talking about retirement and investments and stuff like that, um, you know, he has his hand on that pulse all the time. You all have a team too. And you said you're up to eight people. Is that eight people, including you and Adam? Yeah. Okay. So you've got six other people. Yeah. Adam and I, we have, we just brought on a project manager. We have a designer, um, a web developer, a copywriter. We've, we're experimenting with a social media, um, social media marketing and, and community manager, and then, um, a part-time Shopify developer. Okay. Earlier you mentioned this sort of culture of your company. How would you describe the culture for them, you know, how do you think yeah. the people on your team experience working for the Wonder Jam? 
Um, it's really, we do not place a lot of expectation on the traditional 40 hour work week. So, um, I would say of the eight people on our team, I would say probably five of them, including Adam and I, the Wonder Jam is their only source of income. Um, the other three have other freelance clients. And so we're not, the expectation isn't you need to put in 40 hours a week to be legit or to make enough money. Um, we tend to find that the people on our team have experienced the normal uh, work more than 40 hours a week. People can kind of treat you shitty and it's fine and everything is urgent. And when they come into this setting, we sort of don't acknowledge any of those things. We acknowledge that they exist, but we don't embrace it. Um, and so I think the culture is centered around wanting to help small businesses there being mutual respect and care um, and your life should be more than your work. So our designer has taken like trip to Colorado, Maine, Joshua tree, Portland so far this year and has still maintained all her work. Um, our develop WordPress developer is in a band and he travels when he wants and works in Seattle. Um, there's just a lot of freedom and we believe like your work and your life can be very intertwined without it being stressful. Um, the struggle is, is that naturally as an owner, like Adam and I are the ones that are going to be stressed if there's something's happening. And I would say I default to never wanting to stress out anyone on my team. And I've had to work to allow there to be pressure that exists and expectation. Um, and I am not a perfectionist, so I don't really bring that to the table at all either. So I think, if anything, our culture can be um, very relaxed. And I've been spending the last year finding ways to tweak it so that it's still um, important, you know, because I think you can get too relaxed in your culture. Sure. Do you feel like you're able to grow with the culture remaining relaxed? I think so. I think that it takes a specific kind of person and they're much more self-starters and they're much more independent workers. We have found that introverts work well in our culture because we don't require you to come in from nine to five every day. And some people don't even live in town. So we're as of 2018 really pushed remote first, even though there's six people that live in town. Um, and it requires, I would say the one thing that, I didn't anticipate is just, well, the introvertedness is great for focusing on work and not needing to be like in an open plan studio with ping pong, um, communication and overly communicating and not feeling like you're bugging anyone is probably like our biggest challenge. How do you deal with that? Do you just have to lead by example and start yeah. the conversations just to sort of show them that it's okay? Leading by example and then also individually working with some of our higher um, higher level hires to have them initiate certain things. Like our developer, who is, his name's Matt. He lives in Seattle. He does our WordPress sites. He's older than me, uh, older than Adam. And like him bringing in his um, 
experience and he's great at communicating, like really encouraging him to also head that up, I think is really important. Um, I think it's almost forcing there to be organized hangouts outside of work that don't only require Adam and I to be at those things are, are also really important for other people to bond. Um, and the most literal is talking to someone on our team and saying, you need to communicate more. Um, Mm -hmm. you need to literally type or say three times as much as you are (laughs) saying. (laughs) Um, and that's the most straightforward way. And I think that it gets the point across. Um, and talking about why, you know, it's not just because it relaxes me as a founder or as, as someone who's, um, running through every task in my head before I go to bed. Um, it's like, well, there's 30 more fires I know don't exist. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Like, do I need to be concerned about this is the worst feeling when you're trying to go to bed. Um, cause you don't even know if there's anything wrong. You just don't know. Um, so the wonder jam, it, it sounds like it's kind of structured like an agency, but you're not an agency really exactly. Yeah, we've, we're not an agency in, in the way that no one is salaried except Adam and I and the people's, the people who work for us, their income is, is the ultimate goal is very much divided into hourly flat fee and profit sharing. And we do profit sharing. And so uh, traditionally an agency has like what, let's say 20 people salaried, their clientele is made up of X amount of clients, but two of those clients make up 80% of their revenue. Right. Um, we have worked, and when I say we, more Adam has worked to make it so that none of our clients make up more than like 8% individually. Um, and because of that, anyone can leave and it doesn't rock our world. Um, because no one's salaried, if a client were to leave, um, we can just get more creative. And our ultimate goal of it not being only hourly just allows people to be quick if they're quick. Like our, our designer, Erica, and myself, we're very fast designers and we should be, um, we shouldn't be punished if something doesn't take us long. Right. That's the same reason a lot of people do flat fee projects Exactly. because, because, you know, you should be rewarded for your efficiency as a creative person, because if you do the project in less time for the same money, then you basically just made more money an hour. And then the client shouldn't be punished for your inefficiencies. Exactly. And so it's like, no one wants to, as a creative no one wants to be like, well, this took me 20 more hours than I thought. So here's the bill. Um, and so, yeah, we're just, we're trying to make it so that the foundation is really solid. And, but then we also all have, you know, with profit sharing, it's like, if I were to take on this project as a designer who also happens to own the business, like we all win. Um, and if the profit is there and it doesn't take me long, like we all get a part of that. Um, and so that's been really fun. It has taken me a lot longer to prioritize and appreciate these important concepts and structures in our business because Adam is a hundred percent the person that pushes for these. And I don't think I would ever think about it. Um, and so it's been really good. It, it hasn't always been easy, but it's been really good. So I guess I've got one last question for you. And this cool. is just, well, I guess I've got two last questions for you. 
for anybody who's listening to this, who maybe is a little hesitant or worried about people criticizing them or just, you know, has holdups about creating something, what's something you would say to them to encourage them to start? I think it's, you have to make people care about what you're doing. I would say in general, when we get specific people who stop by our office or we're in sort of a consult listening meeting with them, they aren't finding traction. Um, And obviously like if we, if you want to get like high level, you'd say like, Oh, well maybe the thing that they're trying to offer, like there's not a need, but I don't even think that that's true. I think that you can make someone care enough to think they need it, even if they don't or wouldn't have gotten there otherwise. Um, I am a firm believer in if you are an entrepreneur, you have to make connections with people and that can be online or offline. Um, And I don't think people are, I know people aren't Googling design Columbus, Ohio and finding us and just being like, well, you were the first person I found. Um, We've worked really hard for them to have a connection with us before any kind of transaction happens. Um, And that means teaching classes for free at your local library or blogging, sharing a little bit of insight into your story, being on a podcast, like all of those things matter. Um, And I think that it's, we see so many people who have a good idea for a service or a product. And I'm like, nobody even knows who you are. Like help them feel a connection. Um, and help them care about something other than a thing. Like the reason I buy things isn't just because I need that sweater. Um, It's because I have an idea of like what my life will be like with that sweater or the brand voice behind the business that puts out the sweater. Um, You know, you feel something when you hear about what Everlane is about. So you buy their sweater instead of someone else's. and so I think so many people only think about their skill set and it's so much more than that. The first thing you said there about selling something that people need mm-hmm. takes me right back to you selling paintings of people's houses instead of selling, yeah, you know, pages from your sketchbook. Right. Where there was something there that you figured out people actually valued. Yeah. And like that person doesn't need the picture I mean, they live in the house. Like, why do you have a picture of your house in your house? I, that whole thing still, I get it, but it still is just such an interesting concept. Um, but if it makes them feel something and they can talk to their guests about it when they arrive and the experience was so encouraging for them to see a 12 year old do that, you know, like there's so much more than just here's a picture of your house on a canvas. Um, And I believe the same thing about what I do. I think a client can be successful if they have a logo that they crowdsource. I still think they can be successful, but will they talk about it with as much of excitement? Will they want it in five years? Um, And so there's so much more than just like, this is what you get. That's such an interesting angle. Actually, I don't think I've ever heard anybody articulate the whole crowdsourced argument, you know, there's a lot of different perspectives about it. And I don't, I don't think one way is right over the other, but I've never heard anybody articulate that in quite that way. 
just in the difference between like paying more. Or- will, yeah. Will you want, if you get a crowdsourced logo, will you talk about it as the owner of the business? Will you yeah. talk about it with the same pride? Yeah. Will you have the story to share behind right. how it came into being? Uh, that's really interesting. I've never, never thought about that. I mean, like it could be something that in 30 years, it's like, wow, look at this huge, um, huge business that you've created. And the owner might be like, you know what? I had no money. I spent $9 on this logo and I worked all the harder, you know? Um, Mm. I don't think, like you said, there's no right or wrong answer. And I definitely don't think that there's certain amounts of money that I just don't even think I would do branding for unless the financial model of that business justified it. When you're working... Are there any uh, are there any songs you like to have on repeat, or are there any TV shows you like to have on in the background? This was actually Doc's question on the first episode, and it's like really? it's going to be Doc's legacy because I'm going to yeah. ask everybody from everyone. Now. Yeah. Um. Okay. So I make a playlist for every season. So like spring 2018, summer 2018, whatever. Um. So I'm always listening to that playlist for sure. And right now I'm into like bops like i i have like um a remix of like cardi b's i like it it's all like very it's going to be on the radio most likely um i don't listen to it i don't watch tv shows while i work but i will watch youtube videos um on my phone because if i don't really listen like it's fine um and i can only listen to podcasts when i'm traveling i can't I think I'm, I'm just doing too much communication through like Slack or email that I can't listen to someone talk. Um, so right now I'm into some like good poppy bops and then um, I watch a ton of like makeup YouTube videos, even though I don't really wear a lot of makeup, but I still think it's fun. Awesome. Thanks so much. Actually, it's funny. You mentioned the, um, you mentioned the seasonal playlists. I actually knew that because there was like a month where I just kept going to everybody else's Spotify. Yeah. And like listening to whatever stuff people I knew were listening to just to, kind of get to know, just to get to know people's music taste. Yeah. So like I listened to everybody's music and I yeah. saw that you had all those playlists there uh, probably six months ago. I was doing that. It's so fun. Like I love, I, I think of music so much like as a nostalgia thing. So um, if I'm not listening to my seasonal playlist, I'm usually listening to stuff from like my childhood. Um and so many songs just like take you back. And I love listening to a playlist from like spring 2016 and thinking about that time. Yeah. There are certain songs that come on the radio that remind me of, oh, I had just moved to Atlanta or I just moved to Charleston or right. like I was right. in college or like yeah. I was coming home from a trip when I heard this song for the first time. Exactly. Or like, oh, this was like, I was in a sad place, but this song can still make me think back on the past somewhat favorably. Do you look for inspiration in a lot of those things? Or do you look for inspiration in general, you know, like go to Pinterest and pin some stuff and quote, get inspired the way some people do, or is that not a thing that you do? I don't necessarily, I wouldn't even call it inspiration, but I do sometimes look at Pinterest to set a standard. So I will just like scroll through my home feed and just be like, Oh, this shit's cool. I'm going to make cool stuff. Um, But I'm not necessarily like I create mood boards sometimes for clients, but it's mostly for their sign off. Um, And 
to make sure that we're on the same page, like visually, but I like use, yeah, I like using Pinterest to sort of, um, set the standard high, um, or to be like, this is kind of what's trending. I'm not going to just try to do that. Um, but overall I'm not, I'm not one to know or be able to point back to, Oh, this inspired me to make this. Gotcha. Um, which I like. I, I'm I'm happy with the way I, I use Pinterest. And then I, I, I use it for recipes like most everyone probably. Gotcha. So thanks so much for being on. It's been a really great conversation. Do you want to let everybody know where they can find you online and you know your web address, Twitter, your MySpace page, whatever kids are doing these days? Oh, MySpace. Yeah, right. Um, so my business website is thewonderjam.com. And I am Allie Pal, A-L-L-I-E-P-A-L on everything. So follow me, say hi. I respond to every DM because I've met a lot of friends on the internet, including you. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.